You're listening to Love is the Message with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. Hello and welcome back to Love is the Message uh, and the beginning of uh, our third series. Uh, my name is Tim Lawrence and I'm joined as always by my very good friend, Jem Gilbert. Hi, Jem. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Did you have a nice holiday? I'll be back. <laughs> I did. Uh, well, part of what happened in the past few weeks is I had a nice holiday. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, I still managed to record an episode for patrons while on the holiday. Exactly. People can hear me talking about post-Fordism with French rural church bells in the background. Exactly. And in this post-Fordist era, we don't get real real holidays anymore, do we? Because our uh, work invades our leisure time. What is what even is a holiday for us? Maybe you recording music and maybe dancing re- is our job. <laughs> I think recording this podcast has become our holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well. Anyway, uh, moving on. Um, yeah. So we're on to the third series um, of Love Is the Message, and we're really excited to be back and to be moving on with this. Um, the first series, just to recap, kind of introduce some of the key themes that we wanted to look at in this podcast as it unfolds. Uh, the last series uh, took a kind of deep dive into New York City from the late 1960s to around about 1975, and we ended with the formation of disco as a genre. Um, since then, we've been um, actually doing quite a lot of work, uh, partly preparing for this series, but also uh, recording a lot of uh, material for our patrons, uh, what we're listening to sessions. Uh, a lecture from Jem on Fordism and post-Fordism, as he just mentioned. I've done a few book readings. Uh, we've done another episode uh, that answers questions that our patrons have been sending into us, and we've or there's also been an online seminar. So uh, just kind of going through some of that to let let folks know what what the patrons are also getting. Uh, and now into zero series three, we're going to be focusing on something that we, or maybe I should say, Jem is calling uh, Afro psychedelia the basic approach is that we're going to be stepping outside of the hotbed of new york city music and dance culture and we're going to be expanding the analysis to africa latin america and the caribbean and again the time period will be pretty similar to the last series which was the late 60s through to around about uh 1975 the main thing that we're going to be looking at is that the way that some musicians some who were based in the u.s but others who were outside of the u.s uh, were sonically and imaginatively trying to reinvent the black experience uh, in ways that coincided with psychedelic culture. So today we're going to be looking at artists who were based in the United States. Uh, we're calling them Afro-psychedelic artists. Uh, we're going to uh, ex- explain what is meant by that term in just a little bit. But we're also going to, just just to kind of you know fill everyone in, we're going to be also thinking a little bit through this idea of Afrofuturism, which is quite a popular idea that has described some of the artists we're going to talk about today and, and next week, but has also described them in a way that we think kind of misses out some of the kind of most pertinent elements of their music and their practice um, and their beings that we kind of want to we want to look into a little bit deeper so um so Jem what is uh, afro psychedelia 
So Afropsychedelia is a term I started to use a few years ago. And eventually I hope to get around to writing a book, which I don't think, I don't think the book's going to be about Afropsychedelia as such, but it'll be a central sort of concept. Mm. I'm sure other people have used it. I mean, I know they have because I Googled to see if other people had used it, but it's only ever been used sort of casually. And like every, every time anyone uses it, they're sort of inventing it and using it in their own way. And I guess I, the reason I was using it was to try to talk about just the the simple existence of a whole kind of set of artists, really all musicians, I guess, um, who, as you said, you know, they're black, they belong to the African diaspora sort of globally, and, and they, but they were clearly engaged with psychedelic music, psychedelic culture. I mean, in some ways, it, it's an interesting concept to me because it should just be completely banal to say that. It should just be the most obvious thing you can even say, really, about music, especially about this crucial period in the late 60s and early 70s. So the, the more interesting question, in a way, is, well, why do you even need a term like that? Why do you even want a term like that? And, well, it's partly because, for various reasons, like some sort of systematic reasons, I think, and some contingent reasons, you know, that fact that there, that there has been a kind of deep interconnection between sort of black music culture and psychedelia at, at various points in history is, has, is often neglected, and it's often just sort of completely ignored. So, and in particular... And this is a theme that listeners to the show will already be a bit familiar with from us. But in particular, for example, the sort of most widely received histories of psychedelic culture um, focus very much on California, basically, maybe a bit about swinging London. And there are very few sort of black participants in the stories that get told. I mean, Jimi Hendrix pops up, but Jimi Hendrix is, is this sort of, who we'll talk about again later, but he's presented as often as this sort of anomalous figure. You know, he had to go to Britain to get recognised. And in the first sort of book that has become sort of foundational, so if you like, the sort of history of the psychedelic music, which is a book by Tom Wolfe called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which came out in the late 60s and was about, um, it was really about Ken Kesey and the Mary, Mary Pranksters and the scene that the Grateful Dead were connected to. There's a notorious bit in that book where he basically says, well, there weren't really any black people involved in that scene and the black people in California weren't that interested. And I think you can map that onto a general sort of perception that black political culture around California, around the Bay Area, was really the thing that everybody remembers from it from that time is the Black Panthers. And as we've talked about on the show, the, the Panthers were into quite hard-edged funk. The band that everybody remembers from that area in time is Sly and the Family Stone, who were very kind of energetic, but not compared, but not arguably not particularly psychedelic. And the idea and the claim there made by Tom Wolfe, which has become sort of a cliche of a lot of sort of casual histories of psychedelia is that, well, black people didn't get into psychedelia because the central aesthetic of black culture was cool. And this got reproduced in things like the black exploitation films, etc., that we've, we've talked about already on the show a bit, things like Shaft. And black cool was really sort of incompatible with this kind of the deliberate loss of self or the ecstatic frenzy of psychedelic culture. And this is a sort of repeated theme. Like I've heard Greg Tate, for example, the American kind of musician mm. and critic, say, well, like he, he never got into tripping and a lot of black people he knew would never get into it because they just didn't feel safe. You know, you have to f somehow feel safe 
you know, living in America or anywhere else, like to even feel like it's something you can risk doing, which, which I completely understand. But the problem is that that whole account still just occludes the fact that if you look at it from another point of view, and especially if you look more at the East Coast or you look at other things going on in other parts of the world, other than, you know, North London or, you know, San Francisco, basically, during the same period, then clearly that account is just sort of nonsense. I mean, it's just nonsense. So psychedelics are clearly, for example, playing a role in the development of jazz music and the kind of jazz scene in New York from the early 60s. They're not playing this kind of completely decisive role that they might be playing in the sort of Bay Area acid rock scene, but they're playing a role. And clearly there is an aesthetic of of ecstasy and mysticism and loss of self, which is being pr- practiced and promoted by, I mean, the most the, the, the most well-remembered sort of jazz musicians of that period, you know, John Coltrane, Albert Eiler, people like this, and then Alec, you know, Alice Coltrane, uh, Sun Ra, who we're going to talk about. So clearly there is something going on there. But then also, you know, once you get into the early 70s, I mean, he's the, you know, one of the most influential, you know, black American bands is, you know, he's Funkadelic. You know, they've literally got Psychedelic as part of their name. And you've got a lot of the kind of music we've talked about. You've got the kind of jazz fusion and the music of people like Miles Davis, etc., which is obviously heavily influenced by kind of acid rock and by kind of by a very psychedelic aesthetic. And then all of that kind of continues on, you know, all, all of that continues to have echoes down the decades, you know, in the sort of deep house tradition and what have you. So Afro so the idea of Afropsychedelia is really, for me, it's 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 sort of a reaction against this under this very narrow understanding of you know, the role that, that you know, African-American culture has played or Afro-diasporic culture has, has played, you know, in sort of world culture and, and world music culture. And it's, and um, so it's a sort of reaction against that. Um, and it's a way of sort of naming the existence, I think, of this, uh, this whole, this whole kind of tradition. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I just uh, before before we uh, started to record today's session, uh, remembered that while I was doing some research for this book I'm writing about David at the moment, I was kind of re- I was reading this this uh, book by Martin Lee and Bruce Schlein called Acid Dreams: uh, The Complete Social History of LSD. Just yeah, getting ready reminded me of this little passage that I'm just going to kind of maybe even read or refer to really quickly, which was kind of makes some interesting points to to bounce around a little bit. But it basically, you know, the, the passage goes, while the black power movement had a strong cultural component, it never embraced LSD, which made the only minor inroads into black society, which made only minor inroads into black society during the 1960s. Goes on, reality was already too heavy a trip in the ghetto and many black militants were unkindly disposed toward the black soul singers and rock stars who expressed a preference for hippie drugs in their music. And then it lists Sly and the Family Stone, I Want to Take You Higher, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced, and the the Chamber Brothers, Time Has Come Today, The Temptations, Cloud Nine, and The Psychedelic Shack. Uh, yeah, that's the list. But I guess one of the things is that, you know, obviously there's not, you know, the Black the black Panthers don't kind of amount to the totality of the black experience um, during this, this period of the late 60s and the early 1970s. In fact, Eldridge Cleaver also uh, ended up forming uh, some sort of alliance with the Yippies around that point as well. So there was a meeting. Uh, and then if we look at the dance floors of the early 1970s, um, you know, there was an in- where, which were dance floors that were kind of in many ways 
partly driven by the consumption of LSD that, um, you know, these dance floors, there was a very significant proportion of dancers who were black. So this kind of reinforces what you're saying, that something was going on in the kind of music music realm and the cultural realm that didn't always entirely coincide with the political realm, even though that politics was kind of beginning to make some compromises in the late 1960s. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, I think into, if you, to get into the kind of really specific history, if you're, if you're into the 1967, then there's, a, there's this very clear tension. There's like Stokey Carmichael is having a big fight with uh, people like Allen Ginsberg at the Dialectics of Liberation Conference in London. But then if you, by the time you get into the early 70s, the Panthers themselves, you know, under the impact of their own experience, under the impact of women's liberation, you know, they themselves have shifted away from this kind of, you know, super cool military, you know, terrorist chic militarism of the late 60s into sort of community organising and the, the free breakfast programmes. Mm. And that's also around the time there's this big conference. I should have put in the notes the name of this, but we, we've mentioned it, but I think we mentioned it in the episode about ACID anyway. You know, there's a big conference that the Panthers participate in, but it's not just the Panthers. It's called something like the People's Convention or something like that in the early 70s, which is a sort of coming together of various uh, radical groups. They draw up this document, which is a sort of set of positions they've agreed on with regard to various things. And one of them is drugs. And their agreed position on drugs is, is actually, I mean, this is as it's documented, LSD, marijuana in particular, are classified as what they call life drugs, which they they differentiate from the death drugs like speed or heroin and also i I think it's in that document that it that it's sort of given as their position or this might just be something that was said in some article like uh, in the black panther paper now i can't remember but but they say you know these things can be tools for achieving revolutionary consciousness even though you should stop using them once you've achieved it so revolutionary consciousness is sort of explicitly associated with, I mean, which is exactly what Alan Watts also said about psychedelics. He said you should, you know, you should use them until you get to a certain point in your the development of your spiritual practice. And then after that, there's no point. That was his perspective. So I think even, mm. I think there's a, I'm unclear. So I think even between sort of 66, 67 and sort of 73, like when sort of, you know, funkadelic are much more high profile. I think, that, I think there's quite a significant shift. But even then, another another bit from Acid that Acid Dreams book. I mean, the bit the anecdote that really struck home with me uh, when I read it, because of of this sort of context I was talking about, is um, it's my favourite bit in that really excellent book uh, for you know because of it's touching on these issues. Is it's talking about the early sixties when Timothy Leary is still at Harvard and he's mostly turning people on with psilocybin. They haven't even really got into LSD yet. Yeah, psilocybin is the active chemical from mushrooms and so various kind of celebrities and and sort of um you know members of you know society people are being sort of are going to harvard to get turned on to psilocybin by timothy leary and then going you know being turned into sort of proselytizers for psychedelics uh, and one of them is alan ginsburg you know the great sort of beat poet great kind of countercultural figure so Ginsburg, after his first psychedelic experience, you know, he's completely enthusiastic. Well, it's probably not, I think his first was probably sort of some kind of peyote buttons in the 50s, but um, first um, psilocybin experience. Really excited about it. Gets some of the kind of synthetic psilocybin pills from Leary, takes them back to New York with him. First person he gives one to is Thelonious Monk. Yeah. And Thelonious Monk, so the jazz musician. Monk, a monk really likes it. And apparently uh, Mingus also gets one get quite soon afterwards and, and is really into it as well so it's just Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie as well I think maybe uh, yeah Dizzy addition. Gillespie is also mentioned yeah so 
So it's just sort of not true. It's just not. I mean, it's just. It's. It, I mean, it's always the case, especially if you go through the sort of jazz current. That there's just a different. There's a different sort of lineage. But but I think I think. Um, I mean, all of these things are true at the same time. I mean, it's important not to just disregard the experience of people who would have felt themselves indeed to have kind of too heavy an existence to really, you know, to want to trip or to kind of imply that somehow people should have been doing it. But it's just also not true that nobody was. It's also just, you know, from the point of view of sort of an interest in psychedelic music in particular, you know, the whole history of psychedelic music is so impoverished if you don't include all these people. Absolutely. You know, there's a whole tradition of what uh, the the American scholar, uh, Aaron Saldana, calls white, psych- you know, white, psych- white psychedelia. Aaron Saldana's book, we'll have to get him on the show eventually one day. Aaron wrote this book the, uh, a few years ago called Psychedelic White, which is about, it's really about the Goa trance scene. Mm. And it's about how on the Goa trance, the Goa trance scene is incredibly white. And how there are certain groups of people, according to Aaron's analysis, who, even though they're not actually white, they're, they're like Japanese trance fans. They get sort of coded as white, but it's totally uh, white. Little anecdote: Aaron, apparently, Aaron's been to Beauty and the Beat. Nick Thoburn took him to Beauty and the Beat once years ago, but it was a night when I wasn't there, so I never got to meet him. Wow. Apparently, he really, apparently, he really liked it. Good. Um, not surprised. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, and there's this, and, and, and you know, psychedelic trance, psychedelic trance is this really kind of, you know, is like for us, it's like the ultimate manifestation of a totally white kind of psychedelic music. It's like music which is designed to trip to, but it's completely, it's funkless, it's jazzless, etc. You know, apologies to any sort of fans. We'll get, you know, one day we'll get Graham Sinjin to come on and defend. But but that, but that is the lineage. So there's a there's a there's a lineage of psychi- of of like white psychedelic music, which is still what a lot of people think of when they think of psychedelic music. And it goes Grateful Dead, like that's the, probably the best, the most interesting thing in it. it. Goes Grateful Dead, then it goes to the kind of you know the much less kind of groovy kind of jam bands influenced by the Grateful Dead. It goes through people like Steve Hillage and Gong, you know, who made some really nice records, but they weren't exactly funky most of the time. Then it goes into sort of Psytrance. And it and it just all it is is Psytrance for the past 30 years, actually. And I just think it's just so impoverished. Like if you're if you're if you're interested in like psychedelic music, then you're just missing out on so much. If you if your account of what is psychedelic music doesn't include Miles Davis, if it doesn't understand that the Grateful Dead are cool basically because they're basically a jazz band, you know, not because they're just doing sort of instrumental rock. Like if it doesn't include Joe Clasell in, in the if it doesn't include all these people, then your account of of, of psychedelic music is bore is incredibly boring absolutely and i think the, i mean one other point to sort of throw in here um, i mean what you're saying is is reminding me partly of summer of soul as well this documentary which i had to kind of managed to actually re-watch the other day which was and just sort of loved it as much a second time as the first time and um it was you know the, there's a it's it's kind of almost a psychedelic experience kind of watching the, that documentary in part because of the just like the the levels of, exp- of express uh, expression but also the the use of the use of color and the energy that's kind of present in all of these com- all of these concerts obviously they're recorded in the in the cultural uh, the Harlem Cultural Festival of the summer of 1969 so kind of just you know again right right at the point where we're really beginning to kind of bring in our analysis here and um it's clearly a, a culture which is, you know, not only kind of integral to everything that's going on in New York City at the time, but is also, 
you know, just like pulsating with with vibrancy and with the kind of color that um, you you know that um, kind of brings a different a different level of kind of you know effective energy really, whether that is directly connected to psychedelics or not. Um, and I think that's also it also made me think that that's partly what we want to kind of begin to explore here uh, and to clarify maybe this isn't just about musicians who took acid who happen to also be black and exploring the music that they made but it's a general it's a way into a kind of sensibility uh, you know a way of being um which we're, we're also interested in here so there's ways in which you know sort of the gospel tradition which in some ways is very far from an lsd tradition maybe uh, or perhaps even definitely nevertheless will coincide with it on some sort of level because it's seeking a kind of a higher consciousness it's seeking transcendence from the body uh, it's seeking a kind of a spiritual dimension and so some of the aesthetics that we're going to um, get into i guess will kind of can be explored in ways that evoke you know are either directly related to, to the psychedelic experience or just happen to coincide with it so we should listen to some music so i think we have to start with with sun ra um we're going to start with Space is the place. So why don't you introduce that record, Jem? Okay, this is Sun Ra, uh, Chicago Institute, avant-garde jazz institution. Sun Ra and his band, his big band, the Orchestra, have been making kind of jazz in various experimental I- idioms from the late fifties. Uh, this is from, in a way, is it their peak? It's not really their. It's their middle period. I don't know if it's their. I don't know if they have a peak or a trough or records from 73 there's a film about them called space is the place also made in 74 and well let's hear it for a minute and then talk about it some more space is the place space is the place space is the place space is the place space place that's Okay, so Sun Ra, incredibly singular phenomenon, Sun Ra. I mean, Sun Ra is this musician, if people don't know, who he died a few years ago, but his band, The Orchestra, spelled A, usually spelled A R K E S T R A, have continued to perform. Uh, I've seen them live a few times, like really, really impressive. Um, and they they sort of i mean they sort of live together in this commune communal house like for decades in chicago they their music combines big band jazz with free jazz with experimental electronics um sometimes it's just sun ra playing a keyboard sometimes it's a whole big band it can be anything in between there's incredible level of output like, like i don't know i think they must have released hundreds of, of recordings interesting story given some of our interest on the show actually is i i mean i became aware of them as a sort of mainstay of avant-garde music culture when i, I guess in my late teens early 20s and i bought like a big i had a big collection of sun Ra cds but the cds were terribly produced like they were just basically sort of bootlegs they were just people someone had got the vinyl and played it onto it and compressed it onto compact discs so and the sound was just, you know, it was digital sound and it was just, they sounded very difficult to listen to. 
Uh, whereas if you listen to them on vinyl on a good system, I mean, they're still challenging, but because it's so much more three-dimensional, you can sort of get into the music and the kind of, you know, the sort of sculptural qualities of the music much more, you know. So I think this is true of a lot. It's also true of things like Coltrane, actually. A lot of that very heavy free jazz. I mean, it's not, it's never going to be unchallenging, but it seems much more that you can get it a lot more if you hear it on vinyl than if you, on a good system, than if you're listening on headphones or on a computer or on... Uh, any kind of digital format, really. Apart from, I mean, a twenty-four bit stream on a, on a high quality speaker will, will also sound quite good. But and Giant Sunrise is so this really sort of um, extraordinary institution. Sunra, the name Sunra is obviously a direct reference to the Egyptian god Ra, and Sunra would often dress in this kind of pseudo-Egyptian sort of pharaoh's costume, this sort of Egyptian headdress. Which is kind of allusion to the way in which the idea of Egypt as the foundation of kind of human civilization has become really important in a certain kind of black nationalist imaginary, mm. you know, because the Egyptian people, you know, Egyptian the pharaohs were black, you know, um, and and that fact really got kind of left out of official histories of human civilization until just a, a few decades ago. Um, but it's always this, it's not, it's not kind of, he doesn't dress in this realistic, you know, like a realistic fairy, he dresses in this kind of science fiction, the you know, version of one was sort of made of gold lame and what have you. And Sun Ra's also had this kind of personal mythology, really weird personal mythology that he's promoted, he promoted over the years, according to which he claimed to be from Jupiter or Saturn. Saturn, I think, yeah. Um, and so the sort of science, all the sort of science fiction imagery around Sun Ra and his, and his project, that was one of the main inspirations for an for a term which started to be used by critics in the early nineties, but has become actually much more important and influential in very recent years. And that is the term Afrofuturism. It was first coined by the American critic Mark Derry. And Afrofuturism is is a term which refers both to the tradition of science fiction writing by black authors and sort of the use of, well, it's often described, it's sometimes said to be futuristic imagery, but it's really more appropriately described as science fictional imagery and kind of outer space imagery by artists, including Sun Ra, George Clinton, uh, the, the techno artists, you know, the people like Juan Atkins in the 80s, through to sort of Janelle Monet today, you know, Janelle Monet, who's probably by far the most commercially successful of the sort of Afrofuturist artists. And, you know, Janelle Monet, of course, is much younger than any, than us. And Janelle Monet is someone who got the idea of Afrofuturism from re- reading about these sort of these critics. And I mean, I don't know if she studied it at college a bit, she may well have done. Um, so, and in, in fact, you know, through the agents, the influence of people like Janelle Monet, it's become, it's a really kind of popular idea today. You can find loads of websites, there are, there are exhibitions devoted to Afrofuturism, there's lots more written about it. So it's a really sort of popular term, but it's also, it's kind of interesting to sort of, um, it's interesting to sort of interrogate because the thing about Sunrise, he does, I mean, he, there's this kind of apocalyptic tone to, to some of the sort of lyrics of the songs for example and some of their kind of rhetoric so this famous line that's chanted from one of the songs that's on um i think it's on, on the album and, and the film spaces the places the line that gets chanted is it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet and so i mean quite rightly so critics like derry like um the American critic John Corbett, the British theorist Kojo Eschen, 
quite rightly, these people have pointed out that, well, what seems to be being implied in Sun Ra's kind of, you know, very deliberate mythology is a way of thinking about historicity and history and, and our place in, in relation to the past, present and future, which is simply much more complicated than just having an idea of linear time or just having an idea of going from the part, you know, history moving from a kind of primitive past to an advanced present to a superior future. I mean, from that point of view, Afrofuturism is arguably a bit of a sort of misnomer because historically the term futurism referred to a kind of tendency in avant-garde art you know, from the early 20th century, which was absolutely about just completely abolishing the past, like it's knocking down all buildings older than 20 years, you know, getting rid of, you know, the Italian futurists who ended up mostly becoming fascists, like well, famously wanted to abolish pasta from Italian cuisine because it represented <laughs> the past. <laughs> they were never going to get elected that way. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so, um, so Afrofuturism, in a way, if you want to be pedantic, which we do often like to be, um, is a sort of misnomer, although, but it is still, it's a very sort of suggestive term. And of course, you know, in the 90s, people like Kojo are, Eshen are promoting the term, partly because it's a direct, it's a counter to the idea that what defines kind of black musical, you know, sort of the, the sort of musical genius of the African diaspora is its sort of primitivism or it's the fact that it's somehow music of the body rather than music of the mind or it's it's music of the street rather than music of the, you know, the studio. I mean, it's much less common now. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a sort of polemical exercise nobody needs to engage in now. But it's still it's still the case by the late 90s that, yeah, a lot of the, the, a lot of the rhetoric which goes on to kind of explain why black music is so powerful, it uses those kind of tropes. And and those tropes are all very problematic because they tie into a kind of ra- basically racist history of thinking that what makes black people either either interesting or 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 oppressible is the fact that they are sort of primitive. Well, they're only pro- only problematic if they're kind of essentialized and made given a sort of a totalizing role in the con- construction of identity. I'd say uh, they're not problematic in, in in forming a part of a component of a body of expression, obviously. You know, we don't, yeah, don't, yeah. yeah I think that's kind of, you know, we don't have to kind of, you don't have to kind of disown the association of, of black culture and, and physicality or materiality or the body. Uh, that's not the idea, but I do, you're quite right. Obviously there was, the, what, what it was opening up was a kind of, you know, rhetorically uh, and kind of, you know, I don't know if Kojo and others would like this term necessarily, but ideologically was an idea that, you know, black culture can be uh, imagined in other ways. Um, I suppose the other thing I kind of, that I, I remember from the reading I've done on, on Afrofuturism, admittedly, a, a few years ago, is the way in which it was, it was kind of, I mean, I think we, I don't know if you already said this, but we should say it's a term that came out, sort of emerged retrospectively, you know, so I think it's yeah, kind yeah. of already clear, but it came out, you know, several you know a couple of good couple of decades at least after much of some of the some of this you know certainly Sun Ra's and George Clinton's yeah well this music. is the point because because we were teaching I was teaching I was always really interested in the idea and so I was I was giving lectures to students about Afrofuturism from within a couple of years of the term being coined actually mm. and then but for years and students often really bright students would get very excited by the idea it's an exciting concept but they always struggled to understand, and I would always really have to sort of pull them up on it. That look, Sun Ra didn't call himself an Afrofuturist. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have known what you were talking about if you used that term. But then, but of course, that's all changed now. So now we have a generation of artists. We have people like Flying Lotus and Janelle Monet, 
who absolutely call themselves Afrofuturists and are very sort of conscious that that's what they are. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, no, no, it's really interesting. That's absolutely spot on, and uh, reminds. Anyway, yeah, just to suggest so yeah, to to make this other point is that one of the things that was seen to be uh, important uh, for what has retrospectively been labelled as Afrofuturism was the idea that the goal of assimilation and of civil rights and equal treatment before the law for African Americans by a certain moment in time, and we might want to put that time uh, around about the late 1960s uh, and following the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the the, the election of of Nixon uh, and a a Republican Party that showed no commitment to kind of, you know, amongst other things, ending the war in in Vietnam where young African-Americans formed up a disproportionate number of, of the soldiers. One of the responses was supposedly... Um, and this is a very seductive idea, to give up on the idea of assimilation, to give up on the idea of kind of equal treatment before the law, and to enter into an idea that the, that freedom had to be found elsewhere in a sort of parallel existence. Um, and, you know, black uh, nationalists, to a certain extent, saw this freedom as being potentially located in separating black society off from white, white mainstream society. Uh, but an alternative way into a similar idea was to say, that uh, black musicians might want to occupy the future, that this was a, this was a, a space of freedom, and that this, this therefore became a, a reason for kind of rejecting what was seen as the overt emphasis on the historicity and rootedness in slavery of black music culture. It's kind of there's something polemical about this, and as with all polemics, they they tell uh, they they gain in force when they only tell part of the story. Um, so I think that's probably our way into Afrofuturism in part, um, is to kind of see it as a kind of, you know, as, as very interesting, as kind of, you know, full of, full of political potential, but in and of itself, maybe also containing some kind of limitations and some blind spots. What about, maybe we should talk about the actual, rec- this, the track space is the place, having introduced some of the ideas of, around Afrofuturism. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fairly typical Sun Ra, you know, a sort of big band track um, with a, with the, the chorus doing quite a lot, the sort of choir doing quite a lot of chanting. And, uh, and you know, I, and, it, and, you know, and it sings Space is the Place. And so what it, you know, that's the main chant. And what it, uh, but I think it's interesting, I mean, to me, I think it is, it's a good example of a track which I think fits into this idea of Afro-psychedelia. And in some ways, it fits into that better than it fits into an idea of Afrofuturism, because I think it's imagining, I think for it's using space, as lots of contemporaries did, you know, band, British bands like, Haw- like, like Hawkwind also did. They used the idea of space as a kind of imaginative way of thinking about kind of expanded consciousness, like, you know, getting away from the limitations created by sort of bourgeois ideology and white, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, that is what they're really kind of evoking. With this notion that space is the place, yeah, that it's about you know it's it's a sort of utopian imaginary, and this is um, you know that's an argument that's made in that really recent book by Jana Brown, an American scholar called Black Utopias. Mm. Like she situates Sun Ra and Alice Coltrane, for example, that we're going to talk about, like more in a sort of utopian spiritual tradition than a futurist tradition. Which I think is much closer in some, and I think sort of Afro psychedelia is a sort of can be understood as a manifestation of that tr- tradition. 
Oh, well, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that I think you're completely right. Uh, I mean, just thinking through this, this the space is a place. I mean, obviously, the space is a place kind of evokes this idea of potentially a futurism. If we think of space as being futuristic, and as it often is in, in sci-fi novels, but in music, um, space doesn't have to be futuristic at all necessarily, especially if there's music uh, without... Um, Without lyrics or even, or let's say, song titles that are denoting a specific date, um, so it doesn't have to. Space isn't about futuristic; it's more about a kind of space of potential freedom. Really, I mean, I guess in some sort, of, you know, maybe this is a bit of a leap too far, but it's a par- it's a parallel space to the loft dance floor. It's a place where there, you know, there aren't kind of where the usual regulations and laws that govern everyday society, including kind of a white supremacist or racist society, aren't in play. And if you're going into space, you're not necessarily going into the future. You're just going into somewhere where there's freedom. And indeed, this record is, uh, you know, a spiritual, ecstatic, transcendent, uh, you know, strange, profound, exciting uh, as you as you were basically, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. It's kind of much more about sort of spiritual exploration, um, about joy, uh, in a sense, than it is about kind of some kind of idea of of being futuristic. And I think it plays into this, you know, this which this idea that I think we have ex- explored in during the last series of, of the new emphasis that was being given on sort of partly through black power, the beauty and the value of black culture rather than trying to always dilute that down or to move away from it, which was, you know, in part was the Motown approach. The idea is to kind of center it and uh, glorify it and explore it for its, you know, its beauty, its chaos, its imagination, its kind of, its difference. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of what we're, what we partly hear in, in this track. It's also worth mentioning, and we play, I guess, according to law, 30 seconds. It, it lasts for 21 minutes, doesn't it? It's the whole of the, yeah. the whole of the first side of the album, so it's really quite something. Hi, you're listening to Love is the Message, but you probably know that, and we're really grateful for everybody who's listening. Um, we're also really grateful for the support we've been getting from patrons, and if you'd like to become one of them, you can easily sign up uh, at patreon.com. Uh, there'll be a link in the notes and if you do that then you get the benefit of not listening to any more of these begging messages Uh, we've been really pleased with the support the show's been getting so far we're basically on track to sort of keep meeting our target of making it viable Uh, but at the same time you know it has turned into a project which i think is um it's probably more satisfying than we expected but also more work than we expected it's turning into i think a sort of unique intellectual endeavor really this podcast so if you can support it uh, we'd really be grateful um, if you can't, don't worry, keep listening, but you'll have to keep listening to these begging messages. So f- coming back to the idea of Afrofuturism, mm. I mean, for me, one of the most kind of useful u- ways of, of using that concept is as a sort of lens through which to think about the history of black musical innovation. And I think there's a very persuasive case that can be made that the you know the entire history of recorded music actually since the invention of electronic of electric recording in the late 19th century is is primarily a history of mostly black american musicians finding new and innovative ways to use sonic technologies that they usually didn't invent but they were the ones who figured out how to use them 
This is true of the saxophone, which had just been kind of hanging around like since it was invented in, I think it was the mid-19th century as a louser version of the clarinet. Like No one had really figured out what to do with it until the jazz musicians picked it up. It's true of electrical guitar amplification. It's true to, to a large extent of steel string guitar, etc. And it's certainly tr- it's true of all kinds of things, you know, after the 60s. That we, you know, just... Um, you know, it's true of sampling, it's true of, you know, turntabling, turntablism, it's true of, you know, it's, it goes on being true, really. You can even think about things like auto-tune in the 21st century, all being used in very different ways to how their designers thought they were going to be used. Um, this is sort of hinted at in a classic document, a kind of early document of Afrofuturist thought, which is this film made by the Black Audio Film Connect Collective. It's called The Last Angel of History which we can maybe talk about in more detail in a, in a minute. And they use this phrase, which is the title of a, an album, a jungle album by a guy called Gerald. Great title. I think from 94, I think. And the phrase was black secret technology. And they and one of the things they gesture towards in this film is the history of black secret technologies. And they posit the first of them, or the first one they talk about as the blues. And so that's the context in which they um, talk about uh, Robert Johnson, so maybe I think you should say a bit about Robert Johnson. Yeah, well, I think I mean just yeah, absolutely. But just just to kind of mention, um, you know, the, the last angel of history reference comes from uh, uh, the critic Walter Benjamin. Um, I think when he was writing in 1945, uh, surveying the rise of of uh, fascism in Italy and Nazism in in Germany, and um, and in in this kind of essay, he he refers to this this uh, Klee drawing, uh, which I think is named Angelus Novus, um, and uh, it shows that the angel is is looking as though he's about to move away from something that he's fixed and contemplating. His like kind of eyes are staring, mouth wide open, all of that kind of thing, and. Um, and one of the things is that this angel um, gets um, caught up in a storm, uh, which is a violent storm, and the angel's wings are, you know, are also kind of caught up in the storm and can't can't straightforwardly be used. Uh, and this storm propels the the angel into the future, accompanied by a pile of debris. Uh, and I think the, the kind of un- it's very dramatic. It's very also ex- extremely poetic. Walter Benjamin is one of one of the great critics and also one of the most beautiful writers of the 20th century. And the the point of the, of the of this of this image um, and the analysis around it is that you know history doesn't straightforwardly progress. Um, so if we're talking about Afrofuturism and indeed the kind of the attempt by black musicians uh, to kind of you know leave or critique the present by occupying some idea of the future then this kind of the the last angel of history fits into that perfectly and that's indeed as you as you said the title of this documentary that um features interviews with with kojo eshen amongst others and talks talks indeed about george clinton sun ra bunch of artists and including um, robert johnson so uh, robert johnson is you know is just is well understood and recognized to be the king of the delta blues that's the, the the way he's most often referred to he's a key early innovator in the blues i mean elijah wold uh, who's a u.s critic who i, I really like uh, in his book escaping the De- escaping the delta 
which is about Robert Johnson and what he calls the invention of the blues. He, he kind of notes that there are other kind of figures that contemporaries of Robert Johnson, including Blind Lemon Jefferson and Lonnie Johnson, who were also important blues players. But but Robert Johnson does kind of emerge as the kind of key figure. And indeed, as you again sort of just suggested uh, in your in your kind of the sweeping analysis you put forward, uh, it was about his kind of reinvention of, his, of how technology can be used, and in particular the steel string guitar. Um, he develops this this playing style that is often referred to now as the Robert Johnson progression, which has influenced kind of all blues guitarists that followed pretty much. Uh, he played with a slide and without a slide. He uh, he altered his tunings as well as playing with standard tunings. There was a continual attempt to kind of reinvent the way the guitar is played. I mean, he died young, and he um, and he didn't record much music during his life. I think it might be as little as 30 songs. So a remarkable contrast to sort of Sun Ra, who's kind of laid down more than a hundred albums, I think. So so there's that there's that kind of uh mystery kind of surrounds him in part. And uh, well let's just let me just uh, in- introduce the next record and then then just say a little bit about it because that will help me uh, segue into the some to say something else about the the mystery and mythology that surrounds Robert Johnson. So this is a Robert Johnson track uh, titled Crossroad Blues. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things to kind of mention is that Robert Johnson does sound very strange if you haven't heard him before when you compare him to kind of the Chicago electric blues players who followed not that long afterwards, including, you know, greats such as kind of B.B. King. Uh, they sound much more kind of regulated and wholesome and predictable than, and le- a little less strange, maybe, than Robert Johnson. I'm sure his, you know, his music is partly kind of is 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 partly framed by the kind of recording studio where he laid this down. Um, but there is also just a kind of a you know a strangeness to his voice, uh, some of the kind of phrasing in his guitar playing, uh, the tunings and so on and so forth. Uh, Crossroad Blues uh, evokes this myth, this famous myth that uh, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil uh, while he was standing at a crossroads in the, I think, the pretty sure the Mississippi Delta. In order, he sold his soul in order to have a special ability to play on the guitar. Uh, it's a kind of Faustian pact, basically. This whole episode actually just remembering now gets to be replayed in the cohen brothers film oh brother where art thou which is really good actually i really enjoyed that uh, it's really funny you know i did used to actually show little clips of it to, to students to kind of try and illustrate some of the things about the rise of the recording industry and the, the rise of the blues but anyway so the robert johnson mythologically sort of sold his soul to the devil to have this kind of remarkable uh, playing ability and we hear that on this track. Uh, he died young uh, and under mysterious circumstances. And the other, the other thing to note is a lot of his songs are filled with uh, lyrics that meditate on the theme of the devil and of death. So there is a lot going on uh, in this in this kind of artist and, and this particular song. Um, so you know, and he's as just to reiterate and to bring the kind of argument back a bit, I guess. Yeah, he's figured as an Afrofuturist. Um, because of you know, and it's in partly because of his his technology. But 
there's a there is a you know I think I haven't really thought this through, but there's a there is a sort of a spiritualism, a spirituality that kind of is present in this playing as well as a kind of you know very kind of compelling mythology um, that heads off in many different directions in addition to the kind of future. Love is, love is, love is the message. So coming back, I guess coming back to the 70s, the next track we were going to play was going to be one which sort of reiterates some of these themes. Um, uh, and it's another Sun Ra track, which I think is just, I wanted to play like more than one Sun Ra track just because there's such a huge output of Sun Ra and it's so sort of variable. So we wanted to play the track UFO by Sun Ra, which is from uh, 1979, and I guess it is sort of influenced by, you know, disco. It's sort of being at its peak in a way because it's one of the few Sun Ra tracks which is very sort of funk influenced and you can sort of dance to. It's also a kind of you know, quite big band track with a kind of, you know, really interesting use of the chorus. But it's also sort of danceable. Like, I, you know, occasionally I will play it and DJing and it works. So, but also that UFO, that specific, that reference to the UFO, to the unidentified flying object, the flying saucer, it, it's a recurring theme, you know, it's, it comes back in, you know, with when sort of Detroit techno pioneer Juan Atkins says he, he wants to land a UFO on the track. And again, it has this kind of sense of mystery, the sense of possibility, which I, I think you've already really discussed very well with reference to what sort of, um, you know, what the references to space can mean and, and cannot mean. Another term we haven't referred to actually yet when talking about Afro-psychedelia and Afro-futurism is uh, Alex Wehalia's notion of the American scholar Alex Wehalia, his, his, his concept of Afro-modernism, which is a bit more, in some ways, is more what we, is very clearly what we're talking about with reference to people like Johnson, for example, being these sort of technical innovators and all these other being technical innovators. And then another artist, a sort of jazz artist, who really somehow fit, seems to sort of arguably fit centrally into all of those sort of trajectories, whether we're talking about Afro-psychedelia or Afro-futurism or Afro-modernism, you can't really talk about any of those things uh, in the 60s without touching on the kind of work and, and persona of John Coltrane. John Coltrane is the only musician I'm aware of, apart from, I guess, Elvis, this has happened to, who's been, who is seen by some figures as so important and such a sort of exemplar of something that he's become an actual object of religious veneration. Yeah, there's an actual church of, of John Coltrane. It's a I think it's a branch of some sort of African-American uh, Christian uh, denomination that recognises John Coltrane as a saint. So this isn't connected to anything Alice Coltrane is doing. I'm, I'm uh, no, it's nothing to do. With assuming, yeah. no, no, it's nothing to do with that as well. Mm. So the kind of and it, and it is, you know, it's completely understandable. You know, the sheer sort of intensity and the sort of purity. For me, you know, it was listening to a kind of quite badly recorded cassette version of Expression, a John Coltrane album from I think I think sixty seven. Um, 
I guess when I was about 19, which just ended my identification as a punk, basically. I just thought this is like really, I thought, you know, I'd really been into the kind of democratic idea of punk. Like anybody can make music. You don't have to be a virtuoso. And I heard Coltrane, I just thought, yeah, it's better if you are a virtuoso though, isn't it? Like it's clearly, there's clearly a value to to practicing very, very hard on your instrument because you can do that. Um. And he's just, Coltrane, his relationship to psychedelia is sort of contentious. I think the, the, I think the situation is it's, there's no absolute 100% documented evidence that he had any interest in psychedelics, but it's widely assumed by most biographers and most experts that he was experimenting with LSD at the same time as some of those other New York-based jazz musicians who we've mentioned, because uh, his music certainly does go through a turn you know, towards the much more abstract and the much more kind of ex- deliberately ecstatic in the second half of the 60s. I mean, obviously, it's under the influence of other things, like the development of free jazz as a form of, you know, black radical music. But it's also clear that uh, he's very engaged with, he's engaged both with Indian music, which is already quite closely associated with psychedelic culture. I know people who are aficionados of psychedelic of, a, of Indian classical music really hate this being pointed out and they sometimes just uh, want to say that it was just George Harrison who made people think that there was any connection between psychedelic music and LSD but I mean as we've pointed out on the show before rightly or wrongly uh, Indian music was very popular with kind of acid heads by the mid by the by 63 64 and so that association was kind of there whether you, whether you like it being there or not and there was also a strong connection between the rise of psychedelic culture from the early 60s and the rise of general interests, specifically in Indian mysticism, like more than the kind of Zen Buddhism, which had fascinated the beatniks and their, their sort of aficionados in the 50s. You know, Coltrane has been quite exposed to certain kinds of Islamic mysticism as well through his first wife, I think. But... His his second wife, Alice Coltrane, uh, will become much more again, also much more involved into Hinduism and yoga. And so we thought we'd play a track from an, an album that makes that very that connection very explicit, which is a track called Om, you know, from the album Om. I think we'll play a bit of the initial, um, the sort of chanting, sort of spoken bit from early on on that album, which gets very very heavy, like uh, later on. Christ that the veil is ordained and the rituals taught by the scriptures. All these am I and the offering made to the ghost of the fathers, herbs of healing and food, the mantram, the clarified butter, I the oblation and I the flame into which yeah, no, I mean, the, it's true that track does get really, really intense. Uh, but you know, that's uh, and I, there are there is part of me that you know um, wonders about um, list what it might be like to listen to free jazz on LSD because I must admit I've never done that. So maybe that's something we can return to. But just to kind of um, also just briefly return to a couple of things you were you were saying before we heard that before we heard the track that yeah absolutely you know absolutely it was it's in the mid-1960s that gone uh, drunk old train um like explores this spiritual dimension with two albums in particular uh love supreme is the first one uh, obviously from 1965 and then 
The second is Ascension, uh, which is uh, recorded uh, in in nineteen sixty six. Um, on this kind of thing, on this question about uh, John Coltrane's relationship to LSD, I don't think there's anything that's kind of finite on this. But uh, apparently, uh, one of his kind of biographers uh, interviewed four reliable sources uh, who were speaking off the record, confirming that. Um, Coltrane did did uh, uh, begin using LSD around this time. Um, I mean, yeah, it, they, they, one can obviously draw some links if that was the case, and it would be possible to record the music clearly also without having gone through that experience. But it doesn't. It's not surprising that that might have been part of his experience. Um, my understanding is that he that is that um, Coltrane didn't want uh, Om to um, actually be released. I'm not sure of the exact reasons why, uh, but apparently Impulse did release it in 1968, uh, the, the year after Coltrane's death, perhaps to sort of capitalise on this kind of growing psychedelic scene that was emerging, Haight-Ashbury and other places um, in that particular period. You know, but there, yeah, there is this question of kind of what it, you know what it might be like to kind of listen to kind of such difficult music on on. LSD, but I, you know, one of the th- one of the points might be it might maybe it becomes a lot less difficult. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is this something you've heard then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, years ago, yeah. I obviously, obviously, I tried it because I was into you know I was really into sort of free jazz. Yeah. From before I ever when I, before trying psychedelics, actually, I was into the idea of it anyway from my late teens. Mm. But I would say I was into the idea of it more than I was actually into the actuality of it because mm. it's very difficult and challenging. Mm. I mean, if you want, I think you can sort of get into it. And I think, but I would say you have to try to hear in it of a, 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 an American version, a black American version of sort of Indian ragas, which is what they're trying to do some of the time. So you have to hear the kind of liquidity of it and this sort of ecstatic nature of it rather than just hearing it as aggressive and atonal, um, which can be difficult. Um I mean, there's a whole interesting explanation as to why it would be difficult, actually, because they were really, these guys were really influenced by Indian music. And I mean, so was Miles Davis, is much more sort of listenable music going back to the late 50s. So basically, the shift to modal jazz of various kinds, which basically means that you don't do key changes. You just play, you just, you play around doing melodic improvisation in a, with, in a set key without, without following the key changes, usually borrowed from some song and it can just be very and that was all influenced by indian music which technically if you if you analyze it in western terms like an indian raga is is like always being played in the same in one key when playing playing around on one scale all the way through Mm. but basically indian music has spent several centuries like creating instruments which are designed just for that purpose and also it's not tuned according to european standard tuning we don't have time to get into this here but basically uh, if you talk to someone who's immersed in the Indian classical tradition, they will tell you that all the Indian, that Western instruments all sound like they're tuned slightly wrong because they are. They're slight, They're actually, in, in physics terms, they're slightly out of tune and they have to be slightly out of tune to be able to play in, it, it, with each other and to, um, and to play in lots of different keys. So I think what's going on, part of what's going on in the 60s is that they're trying, all these, these a lot of jazz musicians, they're trying to find a way of replicating 
uh, what the Indian musicians are doing that they're listening to. And you just can't really do that with saxophones in standard tuning. It just doesn't, it can't quite work. And so that's where this kind of real kind of abrasiveness comes from. But then, of course, I think it's Miles. I think, I always think it was Miles who somehow sort of understood what to do with modal playing in a way that none of the others quite did i think and then starts using funk and electronics and things like this to try and get recreate or or go beyond in a way the sort of liquidity and the kind of rhythmic kind of ease of of indian music and then and that's what i and i so but i think this it's all to me i think it is all partly to do with this dialogue with indian music um, which they're all incredibly impressed by. You know, they're incredibly jazz musicians from the beginning of the sixties are incredibly impressed by Indian music because, for the really simple reason that you've got a tradition of virtuosic improvisation that's several centuries old, that's not just a few decades old. But the result of all that is, in my experience anyway, from years ago, is Indian music amazing to listen to or tripping. Um, <laughs> free jazz, pretty, pretty tough. Pretty, you've got to be committed. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the other, I mean, the other thing we haven't kind of mentioned, which maybe we should mention because quickly in passing, is the title of this of this track, Om, uh, and its its rootedness in in Hindu religion. Uh, it's the idea that Om is the um, is the source of the original the original sound, and that sound is the you know is is gave birth to the universe. Yeah, it's the primal. Om is the sound of the prime and the na- the sound and the name of the primal cosmic vibration. Mm. David, you know, David Mancuso used to like to, to talk about often often kind of place this emphasis on home. You know, he was kind of very he he was um, you know as 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 we've discussed already and will no doubt return to he his parties took place in his home. In some of the interviews I I did with David, he he would always kind of quite often when he would talk about home, he would he would say that's home, and then he would spell it out H dash O M dash E. We are coming home. We are coming to the the home of sound, the source of sound. Sound is sound. Give sound came before the word. Sound gives us everything that we become. So, uh, so there's something in this in this the title of that track, of course, that kind of you know cuts well. You know, refers to to, to things that are, you know are more than the tr- the track itself. And he's chanting, and the song. I mean, the the chant is they're chanting lines from the Bhagavad Gita which mm. is a, a, a kind of classical Indian, a kind of Hindu sort of um, scripture. Yeah. Um, and a very sort of one that becomes very po- becomes very popular in the 20th century, actually. It's not it's not massively, it's not as important before the 20th century in that. Um, but it becomes very popular because it's quite, it's quite short, it's, it's relatively easy to understand, and it sort of expresses uh, an Indian cosmology, Vedic um, Hindu cosmology in relatively comprehensible terms. So, but it's, ch- but it's also true. I mean, I've got to be saying, me, me, I remember when I got, I bought this album uh, in a in a shop in Liverpool. It must have been about 1990. And me and my friends uh, were all massive, you know, absolutely reverential fans of Coltrane. And we put it on and we did all laugh when he starts chanting, I am the clarified butter. And then this kind of semi-orgasmic <laughs> chant of ohm, ohm. So it, I, I do sort of believe the anecdote that Coltrane was embarrassed, a bit embarrassed by it and didn't want it released because it is quite a, it's a strange record. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love is the Message. Uh, Coltrane may or may not, but probably did um, use a lot of acid. But somebody, a contemporary, who very, very definitely 
used very large quantities of LSD on a regular basis uh, was obviously Jimi Hendrix. And it's kind of, I think we can't really talk about Afro-psychedelia without talking about Hendrix. And Hendrix also actually, I mean, we've, we mentioned when we talked about Hendrix in the very first series, you know, we mentioned the fact that there was this planned collaboration between him and Miles Davis. And Hendrix is another musician who I think, I mean, like Jerry Garcia as well of The Grateful Dead, was trying to figure out how to use the electric guitar to replicate the sort of virtuosic fluidity which you could hear in the Indian classical music and the, the sitar and the sarod. And and also and was very successful at doing so you know he created these kind of incredible sounds which which were you know trying to kind of um he's trying to produce a sort of um a sort of cosmic soundscape and for my money probably the most danceable track he recorded actually is not uh, i mean some people think it's all along the watchtower that's very well known but for mm. my money it's this track valleys of neptune Hendrix, we talked a lot about Hendrix in the first episode, and I just think it's not, there isn't, I don't have a lot more to say about it. It's just, he's this fascinating figure, and it's partly, it's really interesting that he, his later work in particular, is, before he died, is trying to explore a more kind of jazz-oriented territory. He's, sort of, he's heading it towards sort of jazz fusion, from, but coming at it from the direction of rock rather than the direction of jazz, I think. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I just, uh, I think, I mean, there's, yeah, he, he definitely took a lot of acid, right? So that's the kind of, it's kind of interesting to kind of just uh, think through his his music and his, you know, the, the psychedelic rather than the futuristic aspect of his music in that context. I mean, either he either took it, you know, first in 1966 or maybe at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, I think, but it was a, he was kind of, a, you know, a regular user and I just it just plays back into this kind of you know what you were saying at the, at the top of the show uh, and the Tom Wolf book uh, when he says that you know saying that black people don't get into acid. If there's any musician who's kind of you know refutes that kind of argument, then you know Jimi Hendrix is is the key figure here. I got an anecdote about Hendrix and acid, which is that in the again in the early nineties, just after leaving university, I had a, one of my college friends got a friend a job in the music industry. And his boss was somebody who claimed to have been like, you know, dealing acid in on, on the swinging London scene in the late 60s and, and claimed that one of his customers was Hendrix. And that he claimed Hendrix was doing acid like several times a week. I think that's probably not not a claim that's unique to him. So really, yeah, really sort of into it. But I mean, also, I mean, Hendrix, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's not that important historically at all. Was Jimi Hendrix doing loads of acid? Was Coltrane? I mean, Mm. much more important is the fact that Hendrix is an absolutely key figure in popularising LSD, um, especially in Britain. Yeah. Absolutely key figure um, in popularising it because he was probably the first really popular figure who, like, more than the Beatles, was obviously, was very explicit. And, you know, the imagery on these big albums, the Jimi Hendrix Experience albums, like Axis Bold of Love, is this, you know, is, is, is just borrowed from Hindu iconography again. So the place of sort of, the idea of 
Hindu iconography, Hindu imagery, Hindu cosmology, sort of, you know, lining up with psychedelic experience and psychedelic cosmology. I guess maybe I'll say something more about that for a minute, actually, because we've alluded to it. And and it's also, and it's relevant to the the final artist we're going to talk about as well, as Alice Coltrane. So... Hindu, you know, Hinduism is, is itself, it's a problematic term. It's only a term that really gets invented in the late 19th century as part of the Indian nationalist movement. And it's a term that's ended up being very problematic because it's a central term of kind of extreme right-wing nationalism, which has dominated Indian politics for the past few decades. And hmm. from the point of view of the history of religion, like I, I would often use the term Vedic religion, which just means the religious and philosophical traditions which have their root in the Vedas. The Vedas are the ancient sort of classical texts of Indian religion and philosophy. And of course, it's a huge philosophical tradition, the Indian tradition, which has lots of different currents, lots of different versions, lots of disagreement. So you can't really say, oh, there's this thing, like there's, you know, anybody who tells you, oh, I'm going to tell you what yoga philosophy is anyway, is giving you like a sort of thumbnail sketch, which is about as accurate as telling you that like the Ten Commandments is what Christianity is or something. Hmm. So it's very complicated. But in very broad terms, I mean, the bits of Hinduism or, or, or Vedic thought that really appeal to the sort of psychedelic thinkers from sort of Leary onwards are... It's sort of pantheism, the general understanding that in some sense, like God is the universe and the universe is God and that every individual being or every individual thing is sort of, it's a manifestation of an underlying cosmic reality and an underlying cosmic unity. So one way this is sometimes described is the idea that every single person or everything is just a sort of bubble on the ocean that, you know, we're born, we come into the world, we go, when we die, we sort of go back into it. That's consi- that's very consistent with the sort of uh, you know type of mystical experience which people since Hoffman have sort of felt they were having um, uh, on LSD. Um, I mean, famously, uh, Alan Watts, for example, who, who had been really famous for popularising Zen Buddhism, like got got much more interested in Hinduism and in later other things you know, under the influence of psychedelics. And I think um, it's also this idea. I mean, it's an idea an idea that um the universe god stroke the universe is essentially benign you know the idea that sort of god is love and the sort of universe love as the universal cosmic fact as mm. Aldous Huxley once said is also quite important in that sort of tradition and to some extent just the iconography you know the fact that hindu iconography has all these kind of wild you know very bright colors you know gods with multiple arms you know shiva you know the god who dances and who's dancing the energy of who's dancing creates and destroys the universe like it is all very kind of psychedelic it's very sort of trippy and and um and so it really there's this sort of strong affinity between the, those some of those ideas and some of Others, obviously, there are other ideas in sort of organised Hinduism which are less have less of affinity with the counterculture. Like, for example, the the very strict belief in caste and the belief that society society is 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 should is and should be and can all must always be you know divided between these strict social layers. You know, who are self reproducing the sort of caste system, and um, the fact that in many traditions of Hinduism you can't convert to into it. You can only be born into it. Like you can't, you can't become one. It's partly why the Harry Krishnas became really popular. Even though Harry Krishna is actually a really like socially conservative and theologically very kind of conservative 
form of Hinduism that you know, but they accept converts. You know, they do. That's one. So that's why people George, like George Harrison ended up becoming Hare Krishnas. But obviously, so the interest in Hinduism and, and Indian spirituality saw a big growth and was fed by a growth that had been going on for decades already. An interest in things like yoga, which is sort of has a very complex. I mean, of course, what we think of as yoga as a set of physical exercises has a really complicated relationship to Hinduism. Again, there's a whole. Uh, it's very, it's highly contested by historians whether anything, the thing we call yoga today really existed before like the 1880s. I think the the consensus has swung back a bit in the past couple of years to saying, yeah, it did. But there was a, there was a kind of you know, trend about five, 10 years ago for saying it didn't. And, and there's a growth in, you know, sort of, in, you know, of actual institutions. You know, there's, there's a, there's a growth which has already started by the end of the 50s but it's really accelerated by the psychedelic movement in you know people establishing ashrams which are indian you know an ashram is like an indian monastery a hindu sort of monastery and stroke temple and alice coltrane who is john coltrane's partner who is playing piano and harp sometimes playing with him sometimes playing with other people before he dies but then after after he dies in 68, she really sort of comes into her own as a, as a band leader. Um, she ends up like living the last few decades of her life on an ashram. You know, she ends up actually moving to an ashram in California and living effectively as, as a sort of Hindu mystic and sort of nun like for, for decades. And so, I th- and she's already um, sort of moving in that direction when she's recording her, mo- her still her most sort of famous albums, her first um Petar the Eldowd and and the, mo- the most famous and the most famous is her album from uh, what year is it is it 72 71 I think 71 yeah Journey in Satchitananda and Journey in Satchitananda is this album that is is now I, I think I mean this is Alice Coltrane is really interesting and this will keep coming up on the show as we go along because Alice Coltrane I remember when Alice Coltrane was a very obscure figure like in, in the, as late as the 1990s and it's really in the past 10 to 15 years that there's much more contemporary jazz which sees her rather than John Coltrane or, or Miles or anyone else as the key figure that people refer back to now. So the growth of kind of Alice Coltrane kind of spiritual, influenced spiritual jazz is a real phenomenon of the past 10, 15 years. And um, I'll definitely be playing more of that music on some of our What We're Listening To episodes for patrons. And... So this is a really kind of obscure record that, um, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really, I wasn't, I didn't know it that well. I only, um, until sort of David, you know, sort of played, started playing it every time he came over. He would play it at the start of it because it, it's a record he would often play at the start of a loft party. And he would, and when David first started coming to London, David Mancuso, and he would stay at my house. And he was very, I think quite deliberately trying to turn me into an audiophile which he successfully did, who would bring like bits of equipment that he could plug into just my home system to show how good they sounded. Uh, and his absolute favourite uh, record at that time for testing any new bit of equipment was this. It was Journey into Satchitananda. Satchitananda is a Sanskrit term. I mean, uh, it means... I, I, I always remember being told it means serenity, tranquility, bliss, and it doesn't, but that's not quite right. Ananda means bliss. Chit means consciousness. Sat, I just mean, just usually just means sort of being, I think. But Satchitananda is a term that gets used for Satchitananda sort of refers to the sort of mystical state of being completely present and completely calm and sort of completely at peace and maybe also sort of um, 
being in bliss, but not being, you know, sort of overexcited, uh, which kind of yogic practice and yogic meditation is kind of aiming for really debatable, whether it's the same or different as the kind of state of emptiness, which like uh, Taoist and Buddhist meditation aims at, but that's another question. The album features Pharaoh Sanders, like in some ways sort of John Coltrane's successor as the kind of saxophonist of the spiritual jazz tradition. People always want to say it has a sitar. It's not a sitar. The, the, the characteristic sound at the start, it's actually the, um, yeah, the tambour, yeah, which is just, which is the instrument, the Indian instrument, which makes the kind of characteristic drone sound. It's a semi-automated thing. It's not something that you play as a sort of, um, it's like playing tambourine or something. But it's this very characteristic kind of, you know, sort of flange sound, like wow, wow, wow. And she plays the harp on it. And um, and it's this very, uh, you know, very sort of listenable, very kind of hypnotic, you know, very beautiful piece of music, which absolutely sort of, which for me, I, I think it's interesting in terms of the way I've been setting up some of that history, actually, because I think... Whereas Coltrane and some of those free jazz artists like Albert Eiler, Archie Shett, people like this, they're trying to reach this kind of ecstatic state of consciousness through kind of maximal, you know, intensity, the virtuosic intensity in the kind of free jazz, ecstatic jazz of the late 60s. What's going on with this sort of spiritual jazz of, of Alice Coltrane is that those, those ecstatic and... Um, there's ecstatic sort of elements of the sax- saxophone playing are present on the album sometimes, but it's much more kind of contained. It's much more laid back and it's much more aiming at a kind of, as a sort of spiritual fluidity, which is really, is incredibly sort of affecting. And it's still, you know, it's one of my favourite pieces of music still. <laughs> I think that's um, one of the kind of thoughts around this particular recording is that it, you, you're, I mean, it's true that it doesn't have a lot in common with uh, kind of late Coltrane, and, um, even middling Coltrane, but it may have more to do with kind of early Coltrane from the you know, recordings of the early 60s. There was that track that he recorded called India, uh, yeah, which sure. was on the yeah, recording yeah, of the right. Village Vanguard in 1961. That's um, right. So I think there's a kind of, I, um, there's, a, there's a linking back into that. Um, as well as sort of bypassing of some of the more frenetic kind of you know free jazz kind of you know recordings uh, from Col- from John Coltrane, but you're right. There's this there's a, there's, a, there's this kind of meditative feel to this music. It's kind of it's quite floaty. Um, yeah, that's the word meditative. I knew yeah. when I said hypnotic, I thought that's not quite right because it's right. not it's, meditative is right. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's a track that you know a, a recording that can be played again and again and again but it does it sort of needs a it's it's appropriate when it has a, a the right kind of setting i suppose but it demands a sort of an attention and an immersion in order to kind of float within it's kind of you know it's kind of ambient it's quite ambient i suppose obviously it's kind of ambient style structures um but yes it's a record that i love and uh play at home and out quite regularly and that's uh and that was yeah i also heard it first through david without music 
Life would be a mistake. So, well, to close out, I'm just going to say and mention again this book, Black Utopias by Jane Brown, which is yeah. really great on Alice Coltrane. Mm. And Alice, and she quite explicitly situates Alice Coltrane and her musical spirituality in a tradition that has earlier precedence in, in the gospel tradition. Mm. Yeah, and clearly that, and that sort of, and that comes back to the point you made earlier, Tim, about the resonances between gospel and Afro and you know psychedelia. And I think the next, I think in the next episode, people are going to be wondering, people are going to be saying, what about this artist? What about that? Don't worry. We're going to talk about Arthur Lee next time. Calm down. Um, <laughs> but we're also going to talk about gospel. You're projecting, more. you're projecting a lot here, Jim. <laughs> no, no, there's definitely someone out there. There is definitely someone saying, what about Arthur Lee and love? Okay. There is definitely someone, more than one person. But should you be um, addressing that potentially one <laughs> listener rather than the thousands yeah. of others? <laughs> All right, uh, I think so, at, okay. at this moment, yeah. And, um, okay. But we're also going to talk about gospel next time. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think that's good. That's a good... Uh, We'll carry, we're going to carry on in the next episode more Afro Psychedelia. Thanks very much, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Jen. That was fun. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.